So we're going to be in Judges chapter 11, or really chapter 10, verse 17, but it's basically chapter 11. So, And uh, whenever you get there, uh, again, chapter 10, verse 17, uh, and I'm going to be reading through chapter 11, verse 11. All right. So Judges chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the, leader, the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head and over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. So just to verse 11 uh, this week, next week we will pick up this story uh, and trace Jephthah's engagement with the Ammonites. But for uh, this week, just looking at these verses, chapter 10, verse 17 through chapter 11, verse 11, uh, I want you to notice uh, the kind of origin story that we get of Jephthah. Uh, it can be summarized really in these terms that he was raised uh, in obscurity. And when you look at his origin, if you look at his, his kind of background and then his call to uh, deliver the people of Israel, this is a different kind of story than many of the other judges we've encountered so, encountered so far. It's different for a number of reasons, but what's most dominant about Jephthah's story is how closely it parallels how the Israelites deal with Yahweh in chapter 10. So, we're, and we're going to examine this in our time together, but in chapter 10, verse 6, all the way through the end of verse 16 of chapter 10, the verses we looked at in part last week, and in chapter 11, Jephthah's origin, and the people of Israel calling to Jephthah, and then him responding to them, that dialogue, it, in structure, it, it almost uh, line for line, event for event matches how the Israelites deal with Yahweh. 
And I don't think that's an accident. Remember when the authors of these books write to us, they write to us narrative, in the structure of the narrative, they're telling us what they want us to pay attention to. And so if we can find those corollary events, we can find that similar structure, that helps to key us in onto how we are to understand Jephthah as a character. Because if we don't, if we don't have that structure, we're kind of lost in the wind to see, well, who is Jephthah? Is it good or bad that the Israelites call out to Jephthah? Is, it, is he supposed to be a good leader or a bad leader? Are we supposed to be okay with this happening or not okay, right? As readers, especially thousands of years removed, uh, we're, we're looking for any clue we can get as to how to make sense of these verses. So as we look at the structure of the passage, I want to, I, I'm going to draw that out and how Jephthah's treatment by the Israelites and Yahweh's treatment by the Israelites helps us to understand how we are to reason with Jephthah, uh, how we are supposed to make sense of this character and these events uh, in verses, uh, in chapter 11, uh, really that, that origin part. So the first thing I want you to see uh, in chapter 10 first, in verse 17 and 18, those events, the, the events that are described there, are almost exactly the same events that are described in verse 4 and verse uh, 5 of chapter 11. So verse Verse uh, 17 says, The Ammonites were called to arms, they encamped at Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? They asked that question. He will be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And then the story breaks and tells us this little background about Jephthah, but the events of verse 17 and 18 happened before the events of chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. And then we go back to the present timeline in verse 4, where it says, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. Verse 4 is the same events, the same chronology as chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. So what the author is doing is he's telling us about a problem, and then he, it's almost like in a story where he zooms back, and then he's going to introduce to us a character, and then this character is going to be, we're going to follow his story, and then we're going to get back to the present day, and we're going to see how this character is going to slot themselves in to address this problem. It's a, it's a storytelling device. And that keys us in uh, to Jephthah because his background is not insignificant in these happenings. So verse 17, 18 is the, the problem, and that is going to get brought up again, verse uh, 4 and 5 of chapter 11. But in verse 1, 2, and 3 of 11, you see how Jephthah is dealt with by his brothers. Now, the first thing to notice about him is he is the son of another woman. So similar to many of the Israelites at this point in Judges, they have multiple wives. And that was, a, that was true of Gideon uh, and his children. That led to a lot of friction, right? And that, in that series of events, it's the son who's born of the other woman who ends up killing all his brothers and then ascending to the throne. In this case, kind of the opposite series of events happens. The brothers who are born of the wife are the ones who gain the upper hand and kick out the foreign-born son. But this is, this is not uncommon. At this point in, in Israel's history, multiple wives, concubines, prostitutes, it's, it's all happening in, in the, the layout, the moral landscape of Israel. The other thing to notice about him in, is the very first thing we're told about him is that Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Now that designation that he's a mighty warrior is said of other people in scripture, most notably David, is who that might draw our minds to, David being a mighty warrior. And you'll notice that Jephthah and David aren't all that different from one another. Uh, for one, Jephthah has to flee his home country and he has to assemble essentially this ragtag group of people. And with this ragtag group of people, he's fighting battles. He's engaging in skirmishes. He's probably keeping the people that he lives with safe from the, with this army. 
And that's exactly the same thing you see David doing in 1 Samuel chapter 27. David has to flee Israel because of Saul's persecution of him. And then he ends up with his mighty men fighting on behalf of the enemies of Israel over other territory disputes. So he's fighting uh, in the land of the Philistines. He's fighting uh, against the Moabites. He's doing all of that similar to how Jephthah is doing it here, where Jephthah has to flee his hometown. So there's parallels in that story as well. But what's most notable, what's most notable in the structure is how these verses correlate to chapter 10, verse 6. So chapter 11, verse 1, 2, and 3, and then look back to chapter 10, verse 6. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And notice this, And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So how the Israelites treat God is parallel to how uh, Jephthah's brothers treat him. They, they cast them out. They throw them away. They say, we don't want you around. We're going to go with other people in our relationships. And so they, they kick Jephthah out. But that correlation doesn't stop there because when you get to verse 4 and 5 of chapter 10, you see verse 4, After a time the Ammonites made war against Israel. Verse 5, And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. So there's a problem. And this problem is going to lead to them coming to Jephthah, the person who they've, expel, uh, they've kicked out of the land. And now they're going to try to bring him back to help save him. And then if you look back in chapter 10, verse uh, 7, 8, and 9, you see, so the anger of the Lord is kindled. He sells them into the hands of foreign people. Verse 8, these foreign people crush and oppress the people of Israel for 18 years. And then in verse 9, and the Ammonites, when they cross the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, Israel is severely distressed. So they're in a place of great need. They're in a place of great uh, danger. And then that triggers verse 10 of chapter 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. And you'll notice how close that is to what the Israelites, uh, the leaders of Gilead, do with Jephthah. As soon as they're in a troublesome spot, as soon as they're in need of leadership, they cry out to him. They come back to the person who they've kicked out, and now they need his help to deliver them from the people. And the correlation doesn't stop there because you'll notice in verse 6 of chapter 11, they say to Jephthah, come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But what Je how Jephthah responds is almost the exact same way Yahweh responds. Verse 7, but Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? So he sees through their their need. He sees that it's a, a, their coming back to him is not out of their sorrow. It's not out of their recognizing that they mistreated him and now they are seeking to make amends. They need him to deliver them from this foreign people. That's the same thing that Yahweh says. In verse 11 of chapter 10, the Lord says to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, and the Sidonians also? And then, then you left me, and verse 12, and you cried to me that I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. So the dialogue is similar even between the Israelites and God and between Jephthah and the people of Gilead. How they're in need, that drives them to seek him back out. But he sees through their, their question. He sees through it uh, to its heart level, which is that it's a question motivated by need, not by regret. It's not by remorse that they're asking him for help. And then they respond, uh, verse 8 of chapter 11, And the elders of Gilead say to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now. 
that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and will sweeten the deal and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they say, fine, we know we did wrong. We'll sweeten the deal. We'll, we'll put everything aside. We'll make you even leader over us once again. And this is in response to Jephthah having said, what good reason would I possibly have to come save you? And then if you go back to chapter 10, you'll notice that this is the same thing that happens when Yahweh responds negatively to the Israelites. Because uh, in verse 14, God says to them, go cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you. And then in verse 15, the people of Israel respond to God and they say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Similarly to the Gileadites, they're not taking no for an answer. Verse 16, so what do they do? They put away the foreign gods from among them and they once again serve the Lord. They're saying, Lord, you can be leader over us. You can be head over us. Please save us. Same thing that they do to Jephthah. They say, please save us and you can be our leader. And so there's this, there's this strong correlation between these two groups. And then the last uh, corollary set of events um, is not only in that secondary appeal, but also in that final response in chapter 11, verses 9, 10, and 11, have a corollary response to the closing of chapter 10, verse 16. So verse 16, they put away the foreign gods from among them, and the Lord becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. And then in verse uh, 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 11, you see Jephthah responds to the leaders of Gilead, if you bring me home, and I will fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, then I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be witness between us, and we, and if we do not do as we say, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went to the elders and the people made him head and leader over them. And all of this happened, as it says here, before the Lord at Mizpah. So Jephthah essentially says, okay, I agree to save you. Similarly here, how God says to the people of Israel, it says he becomes impatient over their misery. And essentially that expects us to anticipate him about to deliver the people of Israel. Again, not because of anything that they've done, but out of his, his compassionate heart. That's what we talked a lot about last week. But what's, what's interesting about this strong structural correlation, and I hope that you've seen that structural correlation as we've moved through these verses. What's interesting about that is not so much the structure, but what the structure tells us about the story. So in the Judges 10 passage, it's very clear to us that when Israel is interacting with God, the focal point of the discussion is whether God actually owes it to Israel to deliver them. He doesn't, was the conclusion we came to, because they've wronged God in every single way. They've pursued every other God. They've pursued every other option. They've done everything wrong to God that was possible. And then in the hour of their need, they see it. They see that God is their only option out. So then they come back to God conveniently, now pious and ready to repent. And so the question that gets kicked up is, does Israel deserve to be saved by God? Does God owe it to Israel to save them? And the conclusion is no. God says so in his first response in chapter 10, that go save yourself. Go seek these other gods out. You don't, I don't owe it to you to save you. You don't deserve my salvation. And it's the exact same response that Israel gets from Jephthah the first time. I want to draw your eye once again to um, verse 7, when Jephthah responds to the elders the first time. He says this, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you are in distress? His question is simple. I don't owe it to you. He's making that clear on the front end. saying, I don't owe you any salvation. You've not taken good care of me. You've not protected me. You've not reared me up. 
In fact, this isn't even my home. I didn't even grow up here. I was kicked out of this place. And now, in the hour of your need, you come to me. He's drawing out the absurdity of the situation. That they have come to him and he's saying, you must be extremely desperate. But just to be clear, I don't owe you salvation. I don't owe it to you to use my military skills to deliver you from the Ammonites. And that's almost a footnote that's going to happen in the coming weeks. Jephthah has a crazy amount of military skills. He beats the Ammonites almost without question. So that he can save them is not a question here. The question is, do they deserve to be saved by Jephthah? And when we're reading the Bible for long enough, we begin to get used to these kinds of responses, right? When Joseph doesn't avenge his brothers, we are used to that story. We go, of course, the most natural thing for Joseph to do is to forgive them. We forget that they sold him into slavery. And at that moment in time, the most right thing to have happen would be for Joseph to treat his brothers as they had treated him. That wouldn't be vindictive. That wouldn't be petty. That would be just if those things were to occur. When we read Genesis chapter 3 and we see that Adam and Eve sin against God and God comes into the garden and when we see that Adam and Eve can't stay in the garden, we as people get offended by that. We say, oh God, can't you just get over it? They ate, they ate the fruit. Can't you just let that go and keep them in the garden? Can't you overlook it? You're God after all. And I think one of the things the author is driving home to us is, all right, maybe we can't understand how people wrong God, how that is somehow unjust. God should be able to get over it. Let me explain to you in the story of Jephthah how wrong it was for the people of Israel to treat Jephthah this way. And maybe an understanding at a human level how they sinned against him and how he doesn't owe it to save them. You might be better able to see how Israel sinned against God and how God doesn't owe it to Israel to save them. He's drawing out essentially a living illustration for us. And so, and, and we conclude with Jephthah and with the author, Jephthah does not owe it to these people. But what's interesting is Jephthah does actually agree to save them. But he has a condition. He says, if I agree to save you, I must be head over you. I must be your leader and your ruler. And that's the exact same thing that God says to the people of Israel as well. If I am to save you, if I agree to save you from your sin, if I agree to save you from this predicament, I'm not just going to save you and then let you go right back to your old ways. If I'm to save you, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. You must serve me. You must be guided and directed by me. It's what we would call lordship salvation. That God is not only the savior of his people, he's also the person who then gets to call the shots on how they live their life. And ultimately, this, uh, this is most uh, profound, this is most uh, tense in scripture when Christ comes on the scene. Because when, when Jesus comes on the scene, Israel is, it has been apostate for quite some time, then they've been delivered from exile, then they're under Roman occupation, then they've made a works righteous salvation, and then at the moment where they're most unlikely to be deserving of salvation, God sees it fit to seek out to save them. And the, and the truth that's being drawn out of that is not that God comes to save Israel because they're deserving. Jesus doesn't come to redeem sinners because sinners are lovely. He doesn't come to save the Pharisees from their apostate doctrine because the Pharisees, he owes it to them. That they've done so much good that he has been compelled out of their good works to come down and save them. He comes to Israel at a, a time of complete, dead, dry, religious oppression. And yet, that's the moment at which his heart and his mercy is most displayed. It's not because it's a just salvation, it's because it is an unjust salvation. God saves people by choosing mercy over justice. He chooses to enact the justice on his own son. And for us, that should be a shocking truth, not something that is just a casual observation. 
And I think the more we lean into what is what would be just to occur versus unjust, the more we can see how crazy it is that God chooses to save the people of Israel, that God chooses to save any sinners at all would be insane. And then the, the last thing uh, in this structural outline that I think is worth paying attention to is the, the simple observation that the people of Israel uh, are saved by Jephthah. And similar to what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And is it not a surprise to us that most of our uh, saviors, most of the people who we look to in the Old Testament as heroes of the faith, have these kind of obscure origin stories? We can, we can think about Christ and his starting lowly in a manger with a carpenter as his father, but we can also think about Joseph who was sold into slavery. We can think about King David who started as a shepherd and then is cast out of Israel. You can think about Moses who is sold uh, and he's kicked out of Israel, under, kicked out of the Pharaoh's palace. And you can think about almost every major figure of faith and how they have some kind of weakness to them, some kind of major disadvantage. And for Jephthah, it's no different, right? We're told he's the son of a prostitute. He has, he has nothing deserving. Everyone dislikes him. And yet, he's the person who God is going to choose to save Israel at this moment. And I just think that's a, a beautiful truth because Paul, reflecting on that truth, says, and God's pattern is no different even with the gospel. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. He's chosen what is, what is uh, completely absurd so that the wisdom of the world would not be put on display in his salvation, but it will be truly said to be his salvation alone. And I think that's just a, a wonderful truth to reflect on. So let's pray and we can then move into discussion. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word to us. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful way in which your word is written, how elegant it is and how, um, how much truth is packed into so few words and so few lines, Lord, that we could spend our whole lives soaking in this one book um, these many volumes written by many authors and yet could never plumb the depths of all the truth that is contained in them. Uh, Lord, would you humble us to, to show us just how uh, little we know and how much more we have to understand and how much more we have to apply to our lives, that we would not become complacent when we read our Bibles and uh, bored and, uh, and used to the truth that's contained in it, but that we would be uh, regularly stirred to conviction, regularly stirred to uh, have more affection for you, that we would regularly be floored by the, the wonderful message of your word, the, the unity of it, the diversity of it, the, the beauty of it. Lord, that all of those things would be uh, convicting to us every morning and encouraging to us every day, that we would be uh, edified by your word, as you say. Um, Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.